And if you need a Bible, just raise your hand. Oh, the men's breakfast. This Saturday. Yes, the men's breakfast. Come to the men's breakfast. I think I saw there's like 35 people signed up on the list out there. Uh, I'm coming, looking forward to it. So if you're not signed up yet, sign up. Come out Saturday morning, 8 a.m. Bring your Bibles and an appetite. Ephesians chapter 1. If you need a Bible, raise your hand. I have to apologize to anybody who is going to be listening to this on CD because I'm probably going to cough. My wife tells me that that hurts when you're listening to it on CD. But Ephesians chapter 1, picking up in verse 15. Paul writes and he says, Wherefore, I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and love unto all the saints, cease not to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers. Thus far in chapter 1, the Apostle Paul has talked to the Ephesian believers about the Lord. He's told them that they've been redeemed, purchased by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. That they've been accepted by the Father and adopted into His family. That they're blessed in heavenly places, in the highest realm, under the highest authority. They are blessed by Him. That they are beloved. And that they are sealed by the Holy Spirit of God. The guarantee of the salvation that God has purchased, that He has given, and He has sealed His people. The Apostle Paul talks to them for 14 verses about the Lord. But now, in verses 15 through the end of the chapter, he turns and he talks to the Lord about the Ephesian believers. It's a real lacking component in a lot of our sharing and talking to people about the Lord. See, Paul doesn't just talk to them about the Lord and then say, okay, I did it. But he then closes the loop by then taking them and bringing them before the Lord, talking to the Lord about them. Oftentimes we might share with an unbeliever and tell them about the things of God, the things that are available to them in the salvation that God has availed. Maybe teaching a group of people or a Sunday school class or in front of a church meeting. Perhaps just speaking one-on-one with somebody, challenging them, perhaps exhorting or maybe even correcting them. Or just sharing with our kids. It's good and it's one thing to talk to them about the Lord. But if we then fail to talk to the Lord about them... Sometimes the loop just isn't closed. It just seems like something is yet missing. And it's in our talking to the Lord about the people that we're sharing Him with that just brings the thing to completion. And that's what we see the Apostle Paul doing here. It's in praying for those with whom we are sharing that often makes the difference in whether or not they receive the testimony or the instruction or the witnessing that we are seeking to give to them. So what is it that the Apostle Paul is praying for? And how does Paul pray for these people that he's sharing with? He tells us in verse 17, he says, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, 
the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. What is the spirit of wisdom and revelation concerning the knowledge of him? Well, I shared with you last week that wisdom, very simply, is just the application of knowledge. It's taking something that you already know, but then applying it to your life in such a way wherein it can profit you or benefit you. One of the brothers pulled me aside after last week's message and he said, you missed it on wisdom. And I said, what do you mean? He said, a tomato. I said, a tomato? Okay, a tomato. He said, knowledge is knowing that a tomato is a fruit. Wisdom is not putting it in a fruit salad. said, you got me there. (laughs) Now, the kind of wisdom that Paul is talking about here as he then prays for them that they would receive wisdom in the, you know, in revelation and the knowledge of him. It, It isn't just wisdom generically or wisdom in general as we would think of it in terms of the Proverbs or just general scripture wisdom. But he tells us that it's concerning their knowledge of God. So taking then what they know about God and not just letting it be a a conglomeration of facts that they've attained and that they hold on to or perhaps have organized in their mind, but that then with wisdom, that God would give them the wisdom to take what they know about God and then to apply it to their lives so that it makes a difference. And that's what really matters in the Christian life. See, knowledge can come from just about anywhere. It can come from just sitting and absorbing, listening like you are right now. Knowledge can come from reading the Bible and, and, and just thinking it through or perhaps reading study helps and, and, and you know, comparing commentary with Scripture and just attaining a theological knowledge of God and understanding of the things of God. But all of that takes place in the mind. We store it in this giant information chasm that we have sitting on top of our shoulders. And and, and somehow we think that it makes us mature Christians or that it's bringing us into a state of maturity just because we simply know about God. But it's all mental. It's in the mind. But wisdom, which is what Paul is asking God to give the Ephesian church, is when knowledge moves from the mind and it gets into the heart and it translates out into the life. It's more than just knowing things. See, Pharaoh, in Joseph's day, he was given knowledge about the coming famine. He was told there will be seven years of plenty and there will then be seven years of famine. And he knew what God was going to do. He knew what was going to come. But he had absolutely no wisdom concerning how to prepare for it and how to handle it. Joseph, on the other hand, who also possessed the same knowledge, he was given by God the wisdom to know how to prepare and know how to handle it. The Pharaoh said to Joseph in Genesis chapter 41, verse 38 and 39, it says that Pharaoh said unto his servants, Can we find such a one as this is? A man in whom the Spirit of God is. And Pharaoh said unto Joseph, For as much as God hath showed you all this, there is none so discreet and wise as thou art. 
It wasn't the knowledge that Joseph had that impressed Pharaoh. And it wasn't the knowledge that Joseph had that made him realize that God was working in his life. It was the translation of that knowledge then into a plan that would save the world. He said, there is none so discreet and so wise as thou art in that God has shown you this thing. Now, there are many that possess great knowledge concerning God and concerning the things of God. They can quote scripture and even maybe teach the Bible to people with great authority and great knowledge. They have a great base of it. They know doctrine. They can tell you about justification. They can talk about election. They understand concepts biblically of marriage and family and, you know, work ethic. And and they can enumerate these things to you scripturally from a base of knowledge. And they can perhaps even rehearse the history of things spiritual, whether it be with Israel or whether it be going through the church age and, and have this great knowledge base. But yet for all the knowledge that they have, it doesn't profit their life because it doesn't work when they go home. They can tell you all about marriage, but their marriage is falling apart because they don't know how to take what they know and then actually do it and apply it in their lives. They know all about grace. They can tell you about the blood and forgiveness and forbearance, but yet when you listen to them talk to their spouse or hear about the way that they deal with their children, you realize that their knowledge is not translated into wisdom. They know a whole lot, but they don't know how to do anything with it. Knowledge can be gotten completely apart from God. But wisdom and the ability to take what you know and apply it to your life, that can only come from God. And thus Paul prays for them. He doesn't just give them these facts. But he prays that God would give them wisdom. This Monday morning I woke up early and I began I went downstairs into to the room and my throat was just on fire and you know you, you try to talk but you know you get one word out and then you cough you know and I was like okay forget the talking part I'm just gonna read you know so I just flip open to where I was and I was towards the end of first Kings and you know I'm half asleep I have a cup of coffee I'm spilling on my knee and the Bible in the other hand and I'm reading through there, and I finish up First Kings, and I read all these verses that just were historical fact. Jehoshaphat and his kingship, and I read this verse about how Jehoshaphat built ships, and and the purpose of those ships was to go to Ophir and to get gold and to bring it back, and kind of a you know a rehashing of what Solomon had done in his day. But very simply, it just says that those ships never made it to where they were going because they were destroyed at Ezion Geber. And I read that and I went on and, okay, that, that's fine. It means nothing other than the historical fact. But then finishing the book, I then began to just pray. And I began to just lift my day before the Lord. Jesus, live in me today. Lord, take my day. Take my life. I don't want to do it myself. I don't want to try to do anything myself. And just going through and rehearsing the things that I was going to do that day and just asking God for wisdom, asking God for grace, putting before him plans and ideas and all of these different things. And then as I was doing that, something began to happen where that scripture, that useless scripture about Jehoshaphat building ships that he would send to Ophir for gold came back into my mind. And I heard the Spirit just whisper to me concerning all of the things that I was praying, all the things that I was asking, and just say, be careful, Nick in all of your plans or in all of your desires and the things that you want to do, 
that they don't become the ships of Jehoshaphat that never make their purpose because they're destroyed before they're employed. And I said, thank you, Lord. Thank you. You took something so obscure, something that could mean nothing, that you could just pass over, and you gave wisdom to me concerning your word. And what was just a devotional, note-taking experience of, wow, that's something that Jehoshaphat did. It turned into a spiritual, fruitful interaction with God. Why? Because knowledge was coupled with wisdom that came from God, and it can bear fruit in the life of a person of God. But knowledge can come from anywhere. Wisdom only comes from God. He gives us the ability to know what to do with what we know. And this is what Paul is asking for as he prays. That they wouldn't just achieve an intellectual assent, an acquisition of facts about God that they can store in their mind or say to someone that perhaps they're sharing with, but that it would be coupled with wisdom from God that would make their knowledge fruitful and alive. He goes on in verse 18, he says, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened. If you're taking notes, he prays, that they would have spiritual vision. That they would have spiritual vision. The eyes of their understanding would be enlightened. Now in John chapter 1 verse 18, the Apostle John tells us that no man hath seen God at any time. That with the eyes physically, no one has ever laid eyes upon God. That's what John says three times. In fact, John says that in the New Testament. He says, the only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, He hath declared Him. The word declared means He brought Him forth into full revelation. That no man has seen God with the eye, but the only begotten Son, who the Hebrew writer calls the express image of the Father, He declared Him, or brought Him forth into full revelation. And the idea is that the spiritual things that make up the Christian life cannot be seen with human eyes. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, Paul wrote, and he said, The natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him. Neither can he know them, listen, because they are spiritually discerned. That is, that man by nature, is not equipped or made with the ability to see or perceive the things of God. It's hunting season, and it always seems so ridiculous to me as a child growing up why hunters would wear these fluorescent orange costumes. Because I'd say the deer are going to see them. I can see them. Don't the deer see them? Are they that stupid? Well, listen, the deer are colorblind. They were not equipped by God to be able to see the colors that the hunters would wear because God loved hunters, see? (laughs) But it's the same idea. is that man by nature is not equipped to be able to see the things of God and therefore he cannot see, he cannot perceive, he cannot understand spiritual things unless God opens his spiritual eyes. The nation of Israel, the Apostle Paul tells us, is blind spiritually. Now, not everybody who is a Jew is blind physically. He's speaking of a spiritual blindness. Romans chapter 11, verse 25, he says, I would not that you should be ignorant of this, that Israel, or that blindness in part, is happened unto Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in. 
That is that the blinders spiritually have been put upon the nation of Israel and therefore they cannot understand spiritual things. They cannot see Jesus Christ as their Messiah. They have been blinded. Jesus said, if only you had known, even thou in this thy day, the things that belonged unto your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. They were blinded. They were not able to perceive, to see, to understand spiritual things. So if you try to talk to a Jew and you show them Genesis chapter 22, how father Abraham takes his only begotten son and puts the wood upon his back and he climbs up the hill and then the father binds the son to the wood and says, my, my, you know, God will provide himself a sacrifice. And there there's a ram with the crown of thorns and, and this incredible picture of Christ that's painted there. But yet you try to show it to a Jew. It's so crystal clear to those of us with sight. And they say, we don't know what you're talking about. You take them to the 22nd Psalm that describes the crucifixion. You show them the countless prophecies concerning Christ. Isaiah 53. And yet they can't see it. It's like it's supernatural. There's something going on. The Bible says they're blinded. They cannot see. The eyes of their understanding are darkened. Not just the Jews, culturally, nationally but also unbelieving Gentiles. If you just turn the page from where you are in Ephesians chapter 2 to Ephesians chapter 4, in verse 17, the apostle writes, he says, This I say therefore and testify in the Lord, that you henceforth walk not as other Gentiles walk in the vanity of their mind. And then he describes a Gentile mind, verse 18. He says, Having the understanding darkened being alienated from the life of God through the ignorance that is in them because of the blindness of their heart. That those that don't know Christ, that have yet to come to Him and ask Him for forgiveness and to be adopted into His family, that they are spiritually blind. They cannot understand the things of the Spirit. They are foolishness unto Him, just like the orange jacket is to a deer. We seek to share with them and say, don't you see this Christ? Don't you see this hope? Don't you understand that there's life? And they look at us like a deer in the headlights. They don't understand. What are you talking about? You've you've lost your mind. You're brainwashed. Yes, I'm brainwashed. He washed my brain. Don't you understand? Crazy. It's not just the Jews, not just the unbelieving Gentiles, but there are some Christians that just don't see quite clearly. In Mark chapter 8, verses 23 through 25, the account of Jesus healing a particular blind man, it says that he came to Bethsaida, and they brought him a blind man and besought him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the town. And when he had spit on his eyes and put his hands upon him, I love that story. Can you imagine? You can't see. All you can do is hear And you hear, (laughs) he put his hands upon him and asked him if he saw anything. And the man looked up and he said, I listen, I see men as trees walking. After that, he put his hands again upon his eyes and made him look up and he was restored And then he saw every man clearly. 
There are some people that they've been touched by the Lord. They're saved. They've been born again. They've been regenerated, given new life. But for some reason, it just seems when you talk to them, it just seems that they maybe don't see things quite so clearly. Some of their concepts, some of their ideas, some of the way that they look at the Word of God, and you say, I don't know if you're, I don't know if you're seeing quite clearly. You know, something isn't right. Maybe you, you, know, you haven't looked up or something. Something's going on, but you're just not seeing right. They're believers. Well, listen, Paul prays for such as them, such as us, that don't understand perhaps the way we should, and he prays and he says that the eyes of our understanding would be enlightened. That those areas that are obscure, those things that we can't see clearly, those things that are fuzzy to us in our thinking, that they would be presented to us by God with clarity. That we would possess understanding and wisdom. Well, three things that he brings up specifically that he prays that they would see, that they would understand. In the second part of verse 18 there, he says, that you may know what is the hope of his calling that you may know what is the hope of his calling. Now, hope is the absolute expectation of coming good. It always speaks of something that is yet future, something that hasn't happened yet. Hope, it's things hoped for, things that are to come, not quite the things that are. Now, whenever we're speaking of the hope or speaking of future things, hope or future always has two advents, the earthly And the heavenly. And we have a heavenly hope and we understand that. A paradise that's unspeakable. A place that's indescribable, inapproachable light. The Bible says, eye hasn't seen, ear hasn't heard, it hasn't entered into the heart of man the things that God has prepared for those that love him. We understand the future hope. We don't have much of a problem with that. But where we often stumble is concerning the earthly hope. The absolute expectation of coming good concerning our future on earth. Often we look at the future and we say, it doesn't look too good. The outlook is somewhat dim, especially when you listen to what's going on in the world, the news, the media. By the way, I hope you're paying attention to what's going on in the Middle East. It's real exciting. Big explosion in Iran as they were transporting weapons they of their own admission said that they were transporting them for a prepared attack upon israel israel getting ready to go it alone concerning the reports that have come out in iran about their nuclear ambitions and their progress in making those things i hope you're paying attention very exciting times but everything else in the news is real dark world markets economies Protests, riots, you guys know, I don't have to tell you, didn't come to be depressed, you know. But God's will, biblically, concerning our future on earth, he tells us his desire is that we would be complete. In the King James, it uses the word perfect, that we would be completely mature, completely whole. That we would be established and strengthened and settled in our mind. That's his will, that's his desire for our future. That our peace and our joy, Jesus said, might be full. That's his will. That's his desire for us. That's our hope that we have in, the, in this earth, in this time now. That we would be fruitful in every good work, in every endeavor that God would bless and use us to the maximum potential for our blessing and for his glory. 
that we would increase in our relationship with him and in our experiencing of him, that there would never be a day when we experience less of God than we did the day before, but that there would be this continual growth that he can reveal himself to us more and more, and we can go from glory to glory. And the promises are too many to enumerate when you consider all that God has said that he is desiring to do within our lives. And Paul is praying and he's saying that you might know the hope of his calling. That you might know the goodness that he has designed, that he desires for you. So why does he pray for them concerning the hope for future things? Why is this something that he prays that your eyes would be enlightened? Well, I think it's because for most of us, our natural tendency is to take a pessimistic view of things, isn't it? I know that for me it is. If I think that things could go one way or they could go another way, I'm often like, I'm going to brace myself because I'm just going to expect that maybe it's not going to be so good. I always think of Jacob, you know, that man in the Old Testament that so relates to us, doesn't he? Here he is. He thinks that his son Joseph is dead, that he's been torn by a wild beast. His sons bring him the coat and say, you discern, is this your son's coat or not? And then a famine hits the land and he's watching his substance waste away. His savings account just drain and dwindle little by little, day by day. And so he sends his sons to Egypt where he hears that there's grain. And sure enough, Simeon is abducted there and imprisoned. And the other brothers come back without Simeon. And their message to their father is, well, dad, if, if you ever want to see Simeon again, you've got to send Benjamin, your pride and joy. Because the man there, he found out we had a younger brother. He thought we were spies. He said, if you bring your younger brother, then I'll let Simeon go. I'll send you away with grain. But no Benjamin, no Simeon, no grain. And so Jacob, this man of great faith, this optimistic man who is filled with hope, he says in Genesis chapter 42, verse 36, Me, you have bereaved of my children. Joseph is not. And Simeon is not. And you will take Benjamin away? Listen, all these things are against me. I don't know if you can relate to that. If you've ever said that yourself. Why is everything against me? Why is all this stuff going against me? Things just never go my way. Have you ever said that? You should repent. <laughs> Little did Jacob know that in reality, Joseph was alive. Simeon was alive. Benjamin would be kept alive. Joseph was not only alive, but that he had become the prince of the most powerful nation in the world, and that he saved the world, and that God was preparing Jacob to come to Egypt and live in royalty and honor for the rest of his life. Not only were things not going against him, but God was working behind the scenes in such a way that Jacob could not think in his highest expectations that God would ever be able to do the things that he was doing. And Paul says to us who might be in a circumstance or in a season where we look at our lives and we say, how could this possibly turn to good? All these things are against us. And Paul says that you might know what is the hope of his calling. The absolute expectation of coming good. That his will, his desire, his plan for you is not to destroy you. But to bless you. It's the will of God for your life. 
We don't fail and falter and make mistakes in our Christian life or, or, or in, our, you know, in, our, in our goings because God is slack or because God is slow. We screw up because our hope fails. When did Peter deny Christ? When his hope failed. You're the Christ, the Son of the living God, Jesus said to, or Peter said to Jesus. They were waiting till they went to Jerusalem and Jesus would set up his kingdom. They could never understand how Jesus kept talking about this cross, this death, because he was going to set up his kingdom. And Jesus came to Peter and he said, Peter, I have prayed for you that your faith fail not. Peter's faith never failed. But when he saw Jesus going to be scourged, when he saw Jesus crucified, his hope failed and Jesus, Peter denied Christ three times. And for you and I as Christians, anytime our hope fails, that's when we do things that we are ashamed of. That's why Paul wrote to the Romans, Romans chapter 5, verse 5, and he says, The hope maketh not ashamed, because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts through the Holy Ghost that's given to us. See, when our hope fails, shame is soon to follow. But if our hope is steadfast, then we'll remain strong. Paul says that you might know what is the hope of his calling in our lives. He goes on in verse 18 to pray that we would understand the value of the saints. Read with me. He says that you might know what the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. Now notice that it does not say the glory of our inheritance. Excuse me. He says the glory of his inheritance. Now last week we talked about our inheritance. That's what's, which is coming for us. But this week, look what it says about his inheritance. And notice what his inheritance is. It says in the saints. And he says that you might know what the glory of his inheritance is in those saints. In Matthew chapter 13 verses 44 and onward, Jesus told two puzzling parables. He said, again, the kingdom of heaven is like unto treasure hidden in a field, the which when a man hath found, he hideth, and for the joy thereof goeth and selleth all that he hath, and buyeth that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is likened unto a merchant man seeking goodly pearls, who, when he had found one pearl of great price, went and sold all that he had and bought it. Now, at first reading, the, you know, uneducated reader will look at this parable and say, well, obviously the pearl is Christ. In some of the hymns and some of the modern Christian songs, you know, they call him the pearl of greatest price and all that. But listen, no, 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 that's not what it is. Because Jesus already told us that the field is the world, that in all parables, the field represents the world. So this isn't it. See, the seeking sinner or the field is defined to be the world. The seeking sinner does not buy the world to gain Christ. The seeking sinner forsakes the world to gain Christ. The seeking sinner has nothing to sell, nor is Christ for sale, nor is he hidden in a field. Nor, having found Christ, does the sinner hide him again. At every point, the interpretation breaks down. The only way this parable works is if the man seeking the treasure and seeking the pearls is the Lord. The field is the world, and he found something in it that was so precious, so valuable to him, 
that he would sell all that he has in order to buy it. See, the pearl isn't Christ. The pearl is you and I. And he so treasures, so values us that he was willing to forsake his place in heaven. To humble himself to become a man and then to become a servant. And then to take the sinner's place in death and die and pour out his blood so that he could redeem the world to himself. That was the heart of God towards you and I. Matthew chapter 16, verse 26, Jesus said these words. He said, for what is a man profited if he gains the whole world and yet loses his own soul? Now take that one step further. If everything in the world, every inanimate object in the world is not worthy of one soul, then what that means is that one soul is worth more than everything that's in the world. So that means on one side of the scale, you're going to put every treasure, every possession, every position, everything that this world can offer in all of its splendor and all of its crooked glory on one side. And on the other side of the scale, you're going to place one soul. And in God's economy, he looks and he says, that one soul is worth more. And so therefore he would spill his blood and forsake his place in order to buy the world, not for what it has in it, but because of the souls of you and I. That's the heart of God. Now what Paul wants us to see in bringing this to our attention is the value that God places upon a single soul. Oftentimes we think, well, I know God loves the world, but he's not all that crazy about me. I know that Jesus died the world to save, that whosoever will, let him come. And I know in this great mass of numbers, somewhere perhaps I fit into God's grand plan. But no, no, no. If you were the only one, he would have done it for you. God so values you that your soul in his sight is worth more than everything else that is in the world. And Paul says, you need to understand that. You're not expendable. You're not just a number. You're not a piece of paper in the mile-high stack of paper that are on God's desk waiting to be reviewed and requests to be heard. The Bible says that He keeps you as the apple of His eye. The Bible says that He restores the years that the locust has eaten. He's so in tune. He's intensely in love. And the value of your soul to Him is great. And if we understand this, it fills us with thanksgiving. It fills us with wonder. It fills us with faith. It re-energizes our hope. Also, understanding of this changes the way we look at each other. Remember the guy in Mark chapter 8 who saw men as trees? Don't we do that? Our eyes are open, we're saved, and we understand we're saved, something's going on, but we see people around us and we're like, what's wrong with that guy? He's so stiff. He's always barking, you know. He's like a tree, you know. He doesn't bear any fruit. What's wrong with him? He's got no leaves. Why doesn't he leave, you know? Philippians chapter 2, verse 3 says, Let nothing be done through strife or through vainglory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than themselves. This is only possible if we see each other through the lens of Jesus Christ. If we understand the value that God places upon you, first of all, and upon that guy too, that spouse, 
that son or that daughter or that guy who burned you or that preacher that lied to you or that woman who left you. See, when we see them the way God sees them, it affords us the ability to love them in a way that otherwise we would not have been able to do. He says that you might know what is the glory of his inheritance in the saints, that you'd understand the value of the saints. And then he goes on in verse 19 to say, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power to usward or toward us who believe according to the working of his mighty power. Let me read verse 19 again. He says, and that you might understand what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his mighty power. Now, Throughout the Bible, the power of God is seen consistently. We see the power of God in creation, that God spoke and he said, light be and light was. And that by the word of God, the worlds were framed, the heavens were established, the stars were set in their course and in their motion, all by the power of God through his word, the power of God in creation. We see the power of God in destruction. As he loosed the heavens and the waters flooded the earth and God rained upon the whole creation that he had made and only Noah and his sons survived in the ark there in Genesis chapter 6 as God's power destroyed and overflowed the whole world that had turned and rebelled against him. We see the power of God in deliverance. As by the hand of Moses, God led his people like a flock out of Egypt raining plagues and destruction upon Pharaoh and his people and miraculously opening up the Red Sea and letting his people walk through as on dry ground. We see the power of God in providing for them and forgiving them an inheritance. We understand the power of God in all that he's done and all that the scripture says, but none of that is what Paul is talking about here when he says that you would understand the power of God that works towards us who believe. What power are you talking about, Paul? What do you mean? Verse 20. It says, the power which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead. The power that Paul is talking about is resurrection power. That you would understand the resurrection power of Christ towards us, that which exceeds, as he says there in verse 19, the exceeding greatness of his power. That is, that it is beyond or bigger than every other demonstration of power that we see in the Bible is this resurrection power, which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in the heavenly places. That is, that Jesus possesses the place of highest authority in all of the universe. He defines that. Verse 21, far above all principality. Now, principality, if you just take two words, prince and locality, and smash their heads together, you get principality. And that's what it is. It's a prince over a locality. Every principality and every power. A power is a ruling authority in context. And might, might is any type of stronghold. And dominion. Dominion is authority over a dominion. We understand that. And every name that is named. Now listen, now we understand a principality, a prince over a locality. We understand a power, a ruling authority. We understand might or strength that might be exercised by them. 
And we understand dominion, you know, the dominating power, dominating force. But here's the kicker. Listen to it. He says that is named in this world or not only in this world, but also in that which is to come. That means that in both the physical realm that you and I traffic in on a daily basis and also in the spiritual realm with which we have very little understanding, whether it's in the visible or whether it's in the invisible, he is exceedingly exalted over all of it. He is the highest authority in all of the known universe. You say, well, that is great, but what does that have to do with me? Paul is praying that we would be enlightened concerning the greatness of his resurrection power. So therefore, this must somehow apply to my Christian experience. So how does it apply? How does the position of Christ that's described in verses 21 and 22 apply to my life? Or what does it have to do with us? Now follow me here. I know, well, it's not that late yet. We actually might get out of here on time. But follow me. Pay attention. Listen. When God made man, It says that he formed him from the dust of the ground. And it says that he breathed the breath of life into him and that man became a living soul. That God made this man, formed him, shaped him, designed all of his systems, all of his ways, the way he would think, the things that he would like. He prepared a place for him and then he breathed life into him, this perfect man. And God was the source of all of Adam's existence. Everything that Adam needed, everything that, 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 that made him up, that, that sustained him, was in God. He was connected to God. He had fellowship with God. It says that he walked with God in the cool of the day. He knew him. He experienced him. He drew from him. Everything that made up Adam's life found its source in the person and the power of God. That's who Adam was. His spirit was alive and it was connected to God. And thus, Adam was completely whole. He was completely satisfied. He had no need in him whatsoever. He never thought, well, I'm hungry. There was never a a drive in him that said, I feel like there's something missing that I could be having. He was completely perfect and whole in and of himself in that relationship that he had with God. But God said that the day you partake of this tree, know for sure that you will surely die. And on the day that Adam partook of that tree, the knowledge of good and evil, his connection to God, his fellowship with God was broken. There was a divide that took place between the creation and the creator. The man and the God who was to drive the man. And immediately, the first thing that happened when Adam became separated from God, immediately is that he was aware of his needs. The first thing he said is, I'm naked. I'm naked. There's something missing. There's something not right. There's, there's a hole. There's a check engine light. Something's not right. He realized it as he was separated from God. See, when you're completely satisfied, you have no rec- recognition of the needs that you have because all of your needs are met. It's like if a flower is planted in the ground. You know, you plant the flower and the roots begin to spread out and they draw everything they need from the soil and you just look at the plant and you realize, hey, everything's good. Look at the health. Look at the, the, the lusciousness of the leaves, the darkness of the green. Everything is as it should be. That plant is satisfied. But as soon as you remove that flower from the dirt that it is planted with, and, and you expose the roots, it has begun to die. It has been separated from its source of life. And although on the outside, everything for a little while might seem like it's okay, that flower immediately recognizes its need. 
There's a check engine light. Something goes on and says, no, no, wait a minute. I'm not getting something. There was a continual flow in and out. There was a continual experience of life coming in and going out. All of the systems were, were working. Everything was functioning. And although on the outside, everything might look the same, like it's okay, on the inside, something's missing. Something's wrong. Something's dead. I'm in trouble unless something somehow satisfies or fills this need that I have. The flesh is still alive, but the spirit of the thing is dead. It's aware of its needs, but it's unable to satisfy them. And that's what happened to Adam the day that he was separated in his fellowship from God. Immediately aware of his needs, and he was flipped inside out. Everything that Adam had been, had been spirit, soul, and body. He was connected to God. He was drawing from God. He was living through God. And thus his soul was satiated and his flesh just existed. It didn't even matter. It was immaterial. It was satisfied. But on the day that he was disconnected, he went completely the opposite. And everything in his flesh began to say, I'm hungry. I'm hungry. There's something missing. There's a hole inside. I need something. I don't know what it is, but I need something. And blindness, death, everything that comes from separation from God came upon Adam in the day that he partook of that fruit. And man, as an entity, the descendants of Adam would live forever then in this vacuum. How am I going to satisfy this? There's something wrong. I'm going to fill it with drugs. I'm going to fill it with food. I'm going to fill it with relationships. I'm going to fill it with excitement, exciting experiences. I'm going to fill it with anything I can possibly get in it to somehow quiet this yearning that I have for something and I don't even know what it is. You know what it is? God. Man was created by God. The breath of life was given to him from God, and the only thing that can satisfy man is God. And man separated from God, he's lost. He forever lives in obscurity and confusion. And in Adam, man, plural, as an entity that includes you and I, we were cut off from fellowship with God, from the life of God. He singularly was the representation for all men. And in the first Adam that lived in the Garden of Eden, he brought all men to the grave. And thus, the experiences that we so relate to, that hunger that can't be satisfied, the fading of life. The psalmist said that the glory of man is like the flower of the field, which today is and tomorrow it's cast into the oven. It's nothing. It's a breath. It's gone. Because it's dead. We were created to be eternal. But because of sin. But who enters the picture? Jesus Christ. The favorite title that Jesus used for himself when he walked upon the earth was the son of what? Son of man. The son of man over and over again. He said the son of man came to seek and to save that which was lost. The son of man. The son of man constantly calling himself the son of man. Paul the Apostle in that great resurrection chapter, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he calls Jesus, listen, the last Adam. Or the last man, if you would. Adam means man. What does it mean, the son of man? The last Adam. Listen, Jesus came to this world not as God, but he came as a man. 
He lived his life completely as a man. He set aside the robe of his deity and he lived in human flesh the same way that you and I do, perfectly as a man. He faced every temptation that man could ever face and he faced it, fought it, and beat it as a man. And then as a man, he fought the most epic battle that anyone would ever fight. And it wasn't Satan trying to get Jesus to sin. That was part of it. If he could do that, he could win. But that wasn't the main one. What do we see constantly as Jesus walked the earth? What was Satan always trying to get Jesus to do? It was to not go to the cross. If Satan could keep Jesus off the cross, then he could remain victorious in his quest to destroy what God created. He said to Jesus, bow down and worship me. And I will give you all of it. Everything that you came to purchase by dying on the cross, I will give you right now. You don't have to go to the cross. Just bow the knee. No one's going to know about it. And it's all yours. You don't have to go to the cross. It's all yours. Jesus knew. Peter came to Jesus and he said, Jesus, he pulled him aside. He said, don't talk like that. You're not going to go to a cross. You're not going to die. And Peter was rebuked by Jesus as Jesus looked at him. What did he say? He said, get thee behind me. What? That's right, Satan. Why? Because that's what Satan was constantly whispering in the ear of Jesus. Don't go to the cross. What did they say as he hung there? Come down from the cross. If you're the son of God, then save yourself. Come down from the cross. They said, come down from the cross was the cry of Satan as Jesus hung there. And even the very thief that was hung beside of him looked over and he said, if you are the son of God, then save yourself and us, he said. Come down from the cross. But listen, he didn't come down. He lived as a man. He died as a man. He rose as a man. Now listen, he rose as a man. That means he also ascended as a man. He ascended into the heavenlies as a man. What did he say? Go ahead, touch me. Does the spirit have flesh and bone? He said to Mary, touch me. He was a man and he ascended into the presence of God as a man. And what's the point? What's the purpose? Why do you tell us all these things? Here's what it is. And this is what Paul is praying that they would understand. That Listen. That when Christ rose and was set at the right hand of the Father, like it says in verses 21 and 22. Listen carefully. He brought man with him. In the first Adam, the representation for all that would come after him, man died and was separated from God. But in Christ, the man who was ascended and put at the right hand of the Father, man was brought back into the presence of God. That which was destroyed in the Garden of Eden was mended Through the cross of Jesus Christ as he spilled his blood upon the ground and he brought man back into fellowship with God. The source of all life, of all that is, of all that has meaning, of all that is substantial was put back in its right place when man was brought back into fellowship with God. Jesus brought man as an entity into communion with God. But in verse 19, he's very careful, Paul, to tell us That it is for those who believe. That it isn't this blanket thing that, oh, hey, well, Jesus just did it. And so, no, no. Those who believe. 
Jesus said, whosoever believeth in me shall not die, but have everlasting life. But the point is that those that are in Christ, those that have given their lives, that have called upon him, those that are born again, those that are saved, that we have been reconnected to the source of life. In Christ, we're made alive again, and he becomes the source of everything that we need. You, Christian, if you are a Christian, you are in Christ. And if you are in Christ, then you have been brought with Christ into the presence of God. And therefore, you are seated at the right hand of God. And everything that he is and everything that he avails is yours because you are in Christ. So what resource is not available to you? What need do you have right now that the meeting of that need is not available to you right now because of your position in Christ? What harm can come to your life in the situation that you're in right now because you are in Christ? How can you be estranged from the presence of God as one who is in Christ? Can I suggest to you that if you're lacking in your life, and I'm not talking about money, I'm not saying claim it, but I'm not saying that. I'm not talking about money. I'm not talking about a job. I'm not talking about a better house or your marriage. I'm saying, listen, if you are lacking tonight in your soul, if there is a check engine light on in you and you're saying, oh, there's a need, there's something that I have, my, there's something lacking in my soul, the reason for that It's not because you're not in Christ. It's not because you don't have enough miles on your Christianity yet. It's not because you have problems and you need to get those things ironed out before God will really begin doing his work in your life. But perhaps it's because your eyes have not been enlightened to the exceeding greatness of his power which worketh toward us who believe. The power that was demonstrated when he raised Christ from the dead and set him at his own right hand far above all principalities and powers, both that are in this world and that are to come. Perhaps it's because you have yet to take the knowledge that you have concerning this person of Christ and let it become wisdom that applies to your soul, that works out in your life. And becomes a demonstration of that same power at work, not just for you, but in you and through you. Unless you find rest. You see yourself as you are, seated at the right hand of power. Seeing, seated at the right hand of the glory of God. Paul prays that you would comprehend and understand the meaning of being reconnected with the source of life of having access to the Father, of partaking in that position that has authority over all things, to understand that you have the privilege as a child of God to ask in hope for anything that you need and anything that you want because you're brought into communion with Christ at the highest level of spiritual authority. As we close and the musicians can come, if you're a believer here tonight, God wants to give you the wisdom to be able to live in light of these truths. Not just to know them, but to own them. That You might know what is the hope of His calling within your life. The absolute expectation of coming good.
that you would see how much he values you. And you'd stop seeing yourself as nothing in his eyes. That he cares for you. And that you would understand the power and the authority that you have been given as one who is in Christ. That you would have wisdom in these things, Paul prays. If you're an unbeliever here tonight, you don't know Jesus Christ personally. The bottom line is that you were born separated from God. In Adam, all of us inherited a separated nature at birth. We all lack. We're missing something. And that's why life doesn't make sense. That's why there's this eternal, internal vacuum that can't be satisfied by anything for more than a moment. But God... The same God who made you became like you. He lived on this earth. He walked every day of his 33 years in perfect righteousness, in perfect oneness, perfect unity, perfect fellowship with the Father. But he didn't stop there. He was condemned to die. He allowed the creation to rip out his beard, nail him to a wooden cross, to bleed him out. And the whole time, the words that came out of his mouth, no guile, but Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. Now, do you understand what happened? Because Jesus earned a place in heaven. He never sinned. He lived the perfect life. There was nothing in him that would condemn him to die. He earned a place in heaven. But yet, rather than playing the heaven card, he took the condemnation card. He was crucified. He was separated from his father. He was bled out and he died and he was put into a grave. And in the process of doing that, something happened. He earned a salvation card, but he took a condemnation card. And what that means is that up for grabs is a salvation card. You ever play Monopoly? Get out of jail free? You know, chance, you pull up the card and you're like, yeah, all right, I'm getting out of jail free. Listen, there is a get out of hell free or a get into heaven free card that was tossed up in the air at the moment that Jesus died. And it is there for the taking to whosoever will. There is only one condition. There's only one of them. There is only one. Now, if you can picture in your mind what that would look like on Black Friday... There is only one. Listen, you say, if there's only one, then how can, how can I be saved? How can I get my hands on that card if there's only one? Listen, there's only one, and it has one name on it. Do you know what it says? It says Jesus, because he earned it. Jesus earned that get-out-of-hell-free card, and so therefore his name is on it. And the only way that you can get it is if you become one with him, because it's his. He owns it. And he is willing to give it to you. He is willing to extend it to you. The condition is that you become one with him. That you recognize your need, that you've been separated from God. That you acknowledge that he is the one, the only one, the only name under heaven given among men whereby we can be saved. And that you come to him and say, Lord, take my life and write my name in you. And he says that whosoever will, Let him come, and I will in no wise cast him out. And if you have yet to do that here tonight, all I can say for you is that that's why your life doesn't make sense. That's why you live in confusion and in obscurity. 
That's why you grasp out and reach for some blessing, but yet it never comes. Somehow it always misses. Until you come and settle that one thing that's missing in your life, that relationship with God, it's never going to make sense to you. And if you're here tonight and God the Holy Spirit is speaking to your heart, saying this is the night I'm calling you, son, daughter. This is the night my spirit is knocking on your heart. I pray for you that you would have the wisdom to apply the knowledge of the gospel to your life. And that you would be saved. That's you here tonight. I'm not going to ask you to stand up or raise your hand or come forward, but come and talk to me. Come and talk to one of the pastors here afterwards. It's time for me. Time for me to acknowledge Jesus Christ. Time for me to get off the fence. To stop fighting this internal war of, yeah, I know these things, but I don't have the power to do these things. Come to Jesus Christ. Let's stand and pray together. Father, we just thank you tonight for these truths, these glorious truths. The power of your word sets us free. I pray tonight, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would just move in our midst. That you would take the truths that we heard, the things that we heard tonight, Lord, and that they would move from our mind into our heart. That you would free us from that weight of condemnation, of thinking that we're not good enough, or that... Our issues separate us from you or that you don't care about us. Help us, Lord, to take the things that we've heard tonight and to, by faith, lay hold on them. And I pray that we would understand our position, that we're seated in Christ in heavenly places, far above. And I pray that whatever the need is here tonight, Whoever it is, Lord, whatever their need is, I pray that even right now you would meet that need in Jesus' name. We thank you for your truth. We thank you for your word. Be glorified in our lives, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.